welcome to Top Worst Whatever, the podcast where we rank and discuss the top and or worst of whatever it is my guest wants to talk about. I'm your host, Jake, and joining me this week, we have Carrie Helmick to discuss our five worst cooking mistakes. Hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, Carrie, thank you for joining me. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thanks for having me on, Jake. I'm Carrie Helmick. I'm a friend of Jake's. I'm married to Kyle Helmick, also a friend of Jake's. You might know me from Twitter. And you're a, your own fantastic podcaster using Helmix. Oh, yeah. So tonight we're going to be talking about our five worst cooking mistakes. I think this will be fun. I think there'll be some fun stories here. I know I definitely have at least one that's extremely embarrassing to me. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we go ahead and start with your number five? Okay, so I, I want to clarify that these aren't just cooking mistakes. These are things that I've been done, doing wrong, but once I corrected them, have become top tips on how to cook well, at least yeah. for me. Maybe other people are smart enough to never have made these mistakes. Yeah, so that, it's a nice thing. It's kind of both a, a worst and a top because it is very easily flippable. It's don't do this and it'll, you'll be good. Right, exactly. Okay, so my number five is embarrassing, but not like as much of a game changer as some of the ones higher up on my list, but it's not taking advantage of fond. Do you know what fond is? I'm I sure don't you... know. It, I sound, it, it sounds familiar, but for whatever reason, I can't think of what it is. I'm, I'm sure as you describe it, it will come to me. Okay, so if you're cooking like vegetables or meat in like a heavy skillet over the stove, and as they cook and as they brown and you get that Maillard reaction, there's some mm-hmm. vocabulary for you. Bits of them kind of stick and kind of toast onto the bottom of the pan. And I used to think that was super disgusting, and I would carefully lift all of my food out of the pan to make sure I didn't get any of the, like, extra browned bits on the bottom of the pan. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered that that stuff actually has a name. It's called fond. And if you take out your meat and then you, you do what's called deglazing it by adding some kind of liquid, like stock or wine or even water, mm-hmm. you can turn that stuff into some pretty delicious sauce yeah i love i love deglazing i, I know the term deglazing but i know for right. others and i'd never known the term the term fond for what it is that you're deglazing mm-hmm. well i'm fond of you jake but i've also become <laughs> fond of fond yes fantastic so what some of the things that you have made with your fond well i guess for me it's like incorporating it incorporating it into whatever i was cooking so you don't need to like scrub it off your pan before you keep going like if you mm-hmm. cook some meat take it out. And then if you were going to also cook vegetables, do it right in the pan with the meat because the the bits of meat that are in there and the fat that's still in there from the meat is going to add way more flavor than if you scrub your pan clean and start just with a little vegetable oil or whatever. Absolutely. That's going to lead to my number five, which is throwing away your baking grease. Oh. Uh A lot of people, first of all, if you're just like pouring your baking grease down the drain, don't do that. That's also a very bad mistake. Very, very, very bad. But a lot of people, they'll do the thing where you like pour it into like a plastic container or something and it'll harden and then you throw it out. So my tip would be to not throw it out and keep it. And it, it kind of hardens. If you've never seen the grease harden, it kind of hardens into like a white goopy, you know, kind of like a soapy thing. Just keep that in a jar or something, counter. And sometimes instead of cooking with butter or oil, uh, which are obviously healthier but you can you can scoop some of that baking baking grease the bacon fat into your, your pan and cook with that and add some nice bacon flavor absolutely i feel like i do this on real easy level which is cook your bacon first and then cook your eggs in the same pan where you cooked your bacon mm-hmm. i have done the pouring off the bacon grease and saving it but i 
never figured out how to strain it effectively. And I, then I sort of got felt weird about leaving it on my counter for a long time. Yeah. And so I have been guilty of throwing mm. it out. But you've inspired me. I got to start doing that. And I know it's I know it's kind of a hipster thing, but we love mason jars. And so having it in a, in a jar with a lid and everything makes it a lot easier and, and less sketchy, too. Do you strain it at all? Do you like put it through a coffee filter or something? You're supposed to. I don't. I mean, like, I don't know if you're supposed to. A lot of people recommend it. I don't. I just, mm-hmm. I just do. Especially if I'm just just doing the bacon and not haven't cooked other stuff in the pan. Which so, you know, a lot of times I'll do, like you said, like I'll cook my bacon, then I'll cook my eggs or my veggies or or whatever in the in the baking fat. If I'm cooking in it already, I'm not going to reuse that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do it that way. Makes sense. All right. What's your number four? My number four is not tasting my food as I go, which is pretty embarrassing. <laughs> but I don't know. I think I just used to feel so insecure about my cooking that I didn't want to taste it and know that it wasn't great until it was too late to like get back and fix it. So I'd just mm-hmm. be like, I'm sure it's fine. And I'd put it on the table, then we'd eat it. And Kyle has patiently suffered through some like not that great stuff. But it was Samin Nosrat, author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, who finally got me convinced to really taste my food. And I have to admit, it really, really does help. Yeah, absolutely. And I have not tasting your food on my my list as well. That's my my number three. Okay. Uh, I, I feel like that's the one of the big tips. Like anywhere you're going, talking, you're reading books or watching videos from any chef or things like that. Like that's like the number one thing. They always mm-hmm. say is to is make sure you're tasting your food. And there's all sorts of reasons for it, but you know, especially with with seasoning, you want to make and get making sure you're getting your seasoning correct. And especially, you know, obviously you want to avoid under seasoning, but that's easier to fix after the fact. You definitely want to make sure you're not over seasoning as well, because mm-hmm. that's much harder to to fix after the fact. Yeah, and I think this sort of foreshadows some of my future points, but it, it helps remind you that you're not cooking in order to like win an A plus on following recipe directions. You're mm-hmm. cooking to like have something that you're you and your family or your friends are gonna enjoy eating. So even if it even if you have to break away from the recipe a little bit, like you want you wanna be happy that you're eating it. You wanna feel proud of yourself. Yeah. And that's that's something for me, you know, it's helped me develop as as a cook a lot more because I all glance at recipes sometimes but I'm very much not a recipe kind of cook and I'm very much like an eyeball it taste it kind of kind of guy when I'm when I'm cooking stuff and you know I think it's I think it's a better way to to cook but you definitely if you're going to do that you have to taste so what is what is your process of tasting as you're cooking look like to you like so when, for someone who's like oh, how am I going to taste food that I'm not done cooking yeah some things I think you got to accept that like you're not going to be able to taste your your raw meat seasoning all that well mm-hmm. <laughs> or or safely so I just sort of I try to let that one go but I, I think I've had to get comfortable with just using a lot of spoons or if we're just cooking for the family using the same tasting spoon I promise if I'm like cooking for friends I try not to do that <laughs> learning that like a lot of stuff isn't as hot <laughs> as you think it is I don't want to advocate for being like reckless in the kitchen but you can mm-hmm. dip your finger into like a pot of pasta water just sort of learning little tricks for what is and isn't safe to do. And then, so for you, can you speak about you know, sort of how you develop the the ability to kind of taste in, you know, like, what does this need? You know, was that an easy thing for you? I mean, do you think it's kind of like a natural thing or is that something you really felt like you had to kind of train a bit? For me, it's really ongoing. I don't know if it's like being one of a big family of kids. I sort of felt like if a dish that my family prepared wasn't quite to my liking, I was one of eight voices in it wasn't like it was going to be altered to fit my particular taste so I think I grew up just feeling like oh you know whatever I'll just eat it 
which contributed to me not really caring much to taste my own food. So I'm mm. really trying to like slow down, not be looking at anything else, close my eyes even and think like, how do, how do I like the taste of it? Is it too much salt? Is it not enough acid? I mean, it's sort of cliche, but try to be really in the moment with that piece of food as I'm tasting it. Mm-hmm. All right. So my number four is overcrowding the pan when you're cooking. Mm-hmm. So supplies for a lot of things, especially, you know, sauteing and, and stir frying and things like that, especially when you're cooking meats. Because what a lot of people don't realize is whenever you're cooking food, it releases moisture as you're cooking it. And so when you have too much stuff, like, you know, you just chopped up chicken for a stir fry or something like that, and you ha- it's the pan is just loaded with them, all the moisture gets released. And then there's so much moisture that fills up the pan that you basically, you're no longer using the heat to cook the chicken. You're basically starting to boil them. And so yeah. it, it causes, you know, lots of textural issues and it dries out, dries out your meat. So that's, that's something that I had to learn a lot because I, when I was first cooking, because it's a very sort of easy starter dish to cook stir fries and things like that. I would like just chop up a ton of chicken and veggies and throw it in the pan all at once. And you get all that moisture in there and you're, you're basically boiling your food instead of, instead of sauteing it. Right. I still make this mistake a lot, probably should stop, but it's very tempting because you know, you want to get it all done at once and done quickly, but you're right. The end product is so much better because when you get that darkening and that toasting and, browning on all the surfaces of your meat that's where all the flavor is you don't get any extra flavor boiling right and a lot of people don't realize they'll have you know you're cooking things like in a wok because you know you see in restaurants are cooking on that and Mm -hmm. the difference between you know the way restaurants cook and the way you cook you know on most people's the stoves you have at home the stove you have at home like a flat top you know like a cooktop stove it actually doesn't heat up a wok from all the angles like it's supposed to, whereas in you know, a full restaurant kitchen, you have, you know, the gas burners and it's, it's getting the heat from all the different directions and really doing it. It really, you don't really, you really don't get that on a, on a home stove. And so that's another issue. Yeah. I gave away my walk about a year ago, probably because I finally figured that out. I was mm-hmm. like, why am I not able to stir fry on this thing? Why is only the, you know, bottom four inch disc getting hot? And I, <laughs> I, I kind of had to figure out the hard way that it was just not going to work to cook well. Uh-huh. Yeah, it it looks it looks really cool and it's mm-hmm. fun to like shake it around and everything. But you, know, you might you might as well just be using a regular you know nonstick pan or a cast iron pan or something because that's that's the only real heating surface you're getting there. Definitely, and my, my electric stove heats very slowly to begin with, so it was just it was nothing really delicious coming out of that walk for me. All right, what is your number three? Okay, number three is not sharpening my chef's knife regularly. So I feel like I got kind of lucky. I was at a thrift store and found like in the package still this little home knife sharpener. It's like this little plastic tool with a little tiny intersecting blade that you can basically scrape down the length of your knives. And I found it works surprisingly well. Probably a professional chef would still hate my knives. But Mm -hmm. once I started using this little sharpener on them, it definitely got way easier to cut things and more pleasurable and faster and also safer. Um, I think most people probably know that, that it's safer to cut with a sharp blade. It is something that people get confused because you think, oh, okay, well, my knife's not as sharp and so it's not going to cut me as badly as it would be if I had a really sharp knife. But your life is more likely to slip when you're Mm -hmm. cutting things when it's not not sharp. 
And I had I almost had this on my list. This was like sort of my honorable mention one is is the not sharpening the knife. So we have another one of those things that kind of just fits on the corner of your counter and it has a, you know a fine and a coarse grain thing that you you slide down. It has definitely helped making sure uh, the knife's fine. It's usually not too expensive if you have any sort of like local cooking goods store. Mm-hmm. You, you, sh- you can usually go in there and they'll sharpen knives. It's usually not too expensive. It's if you don't feel like doing the work yourself or whatever, and you or you want it done very well. Usually only about probably 20 bucks to get, get your stuff sharpened. Yeah. So that, that really is the better, the better quality thing to be doing. Mine was literally like this $1 little plastic gadget mm-hmm. that I can like scrape some of the metal shavings off my knife with, but yeah. it does work and it does feel more effective afterwards. Yeah. It's I definitely have, better than nothing. Right. I have Googled before what to do about bread knives because we've over the years collected a few random bread knives that just were way too dull to use. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be a consensus that, that those aren't worth trying to sharpen yourself or really sharpen at all because it's such tedious work to get the the curve between each tooth sharpened. Um, Kyle bakes a lot of bread. And so we were looking into this because artisanal homemade sourdough is pretty difficult to slice with a bad bread knife. So I recently just bought him a new really good one and I wrapped up all the old ones in several layers of cardboard and tape and put them in the trash can so they wouldn't cut anybody. But Very that was responsible. what I, Right. I was reading online that really you should just buy this knife was highly recommended on Amazon. It was like $18 and just buy one of those and replace it. Don't bother trying to get a bread knife sharpened. But chef's yeah. knives you want to sharpen. Yeah, definitely sharpen your chef knife. I had I had not thought about the bread knives. We we have a bread knife that we actually don't use too often because I think I told you about this. We had been looking for our ice cream maker for a long time, and we just found that. But we also found our bread maker with the ice cream maker. So maybe we'll get into to cooking some more bread here nice. soon. Some gluten-free bread? Yes. My wife and kids are, are gluten-free, so we, we got to make our own gluten-free bread. Right. Well, I've heard that like quick breads, like banana bread, aren't too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, to make gluten free, and those are pretty easy to slice, so yeah. you should be okay. We do we do make a lot of banana bread. All right, so we already talked about my number three, which is the same as your number five, which is the the not tasting food as as we go along. So let's just mm-hmm. jump right into your number two then. Okay, my number two, I'm really kind of excited about. It's not attempting to make my own sauces. I used to buy a lot of sauces from the store ready made, but every so often I come up on needing something and not having that particular type of sauce with me and I've googled it and figured out that they're really not that hard to make I've had a lot of success making enchilada sauce barbecue sauce even mayonnaise pesto salad dressings all that kind of stuff is just not that hard to make and I used to buy it regularly and now I don't have to I think it's really fun I love making my own barbecue sauces that's mm-hmm. one of that's one of like my hobbies. Like you know, like Kyle Kyle has his his sourdough bread. I have my barbecue sauces. That's that's one of my my favorite things to make. Oh, absolutely. What do you like to put in your barbecue sauce? So I I like to I prefer the Kansas City style barbecue sauce. So you know the ketchup base. I do occasionally make a mustard based mm-hmm. barbecue sauce, but normally the the ketchup base. And I I like I really like sort of a, a spicier different kinds of chilies. Sometimes some some chipotles. Mm-hmm. Uh, chopped up chipotle and, and adobo sauce and then also you know honey and brown sugar and, and things like that oh totally a little worcestershire sauce maybe mm-hmm. yeah i love it and you know experiment with different things quite a lot but that that's sort of that's sort of my go-to barbecue sauce recipe my number two is not 
using a meat thermometer. Oh, oh I should have put that one. That's a good one. So for any time, any time of meat cooking, and also this applies for for cooking the oven as well, but just from you know mostly cooking on the stove, and it kind of ties into another common mistake which people have with meat, like your people are, are flipping their meats too often and things like that. There's all sorts of temperature regulation issues that people have when they're they're cooking their proteins, but having a meat thermometer really is extremely extremely useful, extremely important. You should only be flipping your meat once, and you know you know it's ready when it kind of comes right off. It's it's built that crust. And then once you've done that, then you you have your thermometer. You can check the internal temperature, and you know you're good to go. It's it helps make you know make things that are at the proper temperature for your enjoyment, taste wise, but also for food safety. Yeah, meat is something I really struggle with. I'm not that good at cooking it, um, like a steak or whatever. I really, I really need to get better. You should come over and like give me a master class on it. That'd be awesome. We can we can definitely make that happen. That would be really great because I I do have a meat thermometer and I do try to use it, but it's probably that I don't understand my stove well enough because I always end up falling a little short of where I'd hope to be. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's most important. I I feel like I'm pretty good cooking cooking steaks and and understanding how how done they are for me it's the the biggest thing is chicken and also it's also you know the most important that you're most likely to get foodborne illness from from chicken and and things like that and so making sure your chickens are your chickens cooked properly is is really important yeah for a long time i've kind of stayed in a sort of safety zone of meats where you can visually tell that they're cooked like your ground beef sausage like chicken that's already been pre-cut up before you throw it in the pan Mm -hmm. Um, the stuff where you have to stick it with a thermometer or cut it open, like roasting a whole chicken or a steak is where I still feel a little nervous. Right. All right. And so let's just go into your number one. All right. Number one is not attempting to cook anything without a recipe. I remember when I got married, I hadn't really done a lot of cooking, but I wanted to. And so I started trying to pick out recipes and shop for ingredients, but I would basically feel like I had to follow the recipe exactly almost like it was some kind of magic spell and if I didn't get every element in place perfectly the dish was not going to come together at all and looking back like four years later it's kind of exciting to realize that I'm now at a place where I know in my head how a lot of food elements work together what stuff tastes good what I like to eat and I can just sort of wander into my kitchen and throw things together and come out with something that's going to be pretty tasty in a way that I never would have dreamed of doing, you know, not all that long ago. And it, it's sort of be from just literally trying different things, like total experimentation, also doing a lot of reading and looking at recipes and stuff, but a lot of just getting comfortable with, you know, what, what tastes good to me? What do I like? What, what do I feel like eating right now? And how can I make that happen with the ingredients in my fridge? Yeah, I agree. And I think, I really think that's when, when cooking becomes fun is when is when you reach that point where you're not sort of you know a slave to a recipe and it it to me that sort of feels a lot more like work whereas when you when you feel f- the freedom to just kind of look at what you have in your pantry in your fridge and and kind of know how those things go together and just kind of come up with an idea of what to throw together to me that's really when when cooking starts being fun yeah this goes back to i think we were talking about tasting food earlier mm-hmm. learning like what are the elements to something that tastes really good and i I want to recommend again that book by Samin Nosrat, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, because she talks about like something that tastes really good has to be well salted. It usually 
needs a hit of like brightness from acidity or like a fresh produce of some kind. And fat really helps like flavor to carry through. And then like you were talking about cooking meats, uh, understanding the proper application of heat. So her book has helped a little bit, but just sort of general practice in the kitchen also gets you there. Yeah. I and I, I, and I want to recommend just a couple books that were really helpful for me in, in becoming confident in cooking. The first one is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything, which is just mm-hmm. sort of a massive sort of textbook kind of thing where it, it does have recipes, but it has all sorts of variations and, you know, it sort of ex- explains the dishes and the category of food in general also, and it kind of encourages you to to make these adjustments and try different variations and sort of things and kind of hold your hand as you do that. And then the other one is the Flavor Bible, which is a book that you can look up an ingredient like, you know, lime or you know, a category of food like Thai or whatever and, and look it up and it'll give you these flavor profiles of, of what that is, but also and what things match well with it. And so that's really fun to just kind of experiment with to, you know, to look and say, okay, well, I have... I have all this in my fridge. I don't know what goes with it. I'm gonna look in my flavor bottle here and say, "Oh, these flavors go well together. Let's see if I can match, you know, match those together and just kind of throw throw a dish together and and kind of wing it." Oh, that's really awesome. I'll have to look into that. So yeah, I def- definitely recommend that. But yeah, I agree that once you get get away from the recipe book, that's when you really start cooking. I think. Mm-hmm. Another one that I I don't know a lot, but I know a lot of people really appreciate is J. Kenji Lopez Alt. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. The, for the, like the food lab. Yeah, exactly. For learning these different types of techniques. My friend was just telling me about this method of cooking pasta where you don't use the stove at all. You just put your pasta in salted water and let it sit for half an hour. And apparently it comes out cooked perfectly, hmm. which I'm fascinated by. Interesting. Yeah, I have, I have, I don't know if he has a second book out now, but his, his first food lab book, I, I have that. That's another sort of big textbook kind of thing that I that I have that it's that's really interesting and all of his articles are fascinating yeah I follow him on Twitter and he recently shared an article about a restaurant that's like trying to promote the idea of children being like involved and it's really family friendly and it's he was talking about how it's important that you know children also belong in society they deserve to be able to eat out and eat good food not just like do you want Mm -hmm. the chicken fingers or the mac and cheese yeah (laughs) nothing wrong with chicken fingers or mac and cheese but like kids can and should get to eat a whole wide range of stuff just like grown-ups yeah it's interesting my my girls well my older daughter is is definitely in a lot of ways a picky eater but also you know we'll go out to eat and her i think her favorite dish is pad thai so if you if you give kids the opportunity to try to try things you know that they're still kids they're still gonna be picky and finicky about a lot of things but they're also gonna surprise you sometimes yeah, and I know I've heard, too, that some kids need to be exposed to food, like, 15 or 30 times before they'll try it. So mm-hmm. it's not, like, it's not a battle lost if they won't put it in their mouth. Like, seeing it on their plate, watching their parents eat it, getting to smell it, like, all of that inches them closer to being comfortable enough to eat that food one day. So, Definitely. yeah, you're, you're still doing good work by cooking and showing them things, even if they don't eat it right away. Definitely. So my number one mistake, probably not the sort of thing that a lot of people do, but this, it's definitely the worst cooking mistake that I've ever made. Mm-hmm. And that is not paying close enough attention to the labels. So oh. I have a story here. I was leaving, I was getting ready to leave for work, going to be in a different state for work for about a week. And so I was trying to, and I think 
I think my wife was pregnant at the time. And so I'm trying to like prep meals and stuff for her. So she has stuff to eat while I'm gone. And so one of the, the one of the meals she likes to have like frozen and ready so she can just take out and, and heat up is chimichangas. Mm-hmm. And so I had I was making a batch of chimis, got the chicken and the salsa and the cheese and everything, and I'm I'm making it. And one of the seasonings that we use is cumin. And I was not paying very close attention, and made an entire batch of chimis not with cumin but with cinnamon. Oh my goodness! And they were awful. Ah, poor so, Jill. So I'm at this point. I'm I'm gone. I'm on my 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 trip, and I get a text from from Jill saying what is wrong with these chimneys what did you put in them and I, I was like I don't know like I just made them like I always do and eventually she figured out that yeah I had put cinnamon and I was not paying close enough attention to the you know the brown the brown spice that I that started with the C that I was putting into the dish and I, I put cinnamon instead of cumin oh no <sighs> yeah that's a good one I actually recently put cinnamon in ground turkey i think i don't know what i was thinking i was supposed to make taco meat for my family when we were staying in california and my mom was like just you know look through the spice cupboard and and you know throw in what you know would be good and so i did put cumin in and chili powder and all that kind of stuff and then i i remembered hearing about some recipe i think that put cinnamon into meat of some kind and i was like huh might as well try that and it didn't really go over all that well. So, I I don't want to say there's not situations in which you can't use cinnamon in you know a a, a savory sort of way, mm-hmm. but when it's mixed with you know cheese and salsa and things like that, it's not the best combination. <laughs> right? Yeah, I wasn't thinking that one through. So that was uh that that that's definitely the the most embarrassing cooking mistake that I've ever made. I should have thought of a story for mine. I don't know if I have one off the top of my head. I mean, I can remember things that Kyle, you know, manfully ate, but definitely weren't great. But that's no tough. one, no one story to top them all. That's that's just part of marriage. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did not. I we we were out at dinner with my my family this evening, and my mom was telling stories. But I, I was a very picky eater. I mean, even into my, you know, late teens you know, was not very adventurous on my eating and I did not cook at all. It was not until Jill and I started dating that I that I really started cooking. And and now I'm the primary primary cook in our family. I cook most of our meals just because I, I love it. I, it's it's so much fun for me. Yeah, it's a lot of fun for me too. And I really love when we have friends over like to play D and to cook some big pot of something that everybody can enjoy. Recently I, a friend of mine taught me how to make mussels, someone who grew up on Long Island. And so I went to the grocery store and brought home the bags and kept them on ice in the fridge and steamed them over this mirepoix with butter and white wine in it. And they turned out so good. And I cannot wait to do it again. It was really, really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, you'll have to come over and I'll make mussels for you and you can teach me how to cook steak. Sounds like a a plan. I'd I'd (laughs) love it. Yeah, we, we don't get to see you guys anywhere near enough. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. Carrie, for joining me. This is a lot of fun. I love getting to talk with you. And you know, even though we're just hanging out on Skype, it's it's very nice. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Kyla and I just recorded an episode of our podcast, Raising Helmix. And we we touted you and, and this podcast and talked about how much we like it. So awesome. look forward to that. Appreciate it. Well, you mentioned your podcast 
where can people find your podcast and any other stuff you want to plug yourself on Twitter, things like that? I'm on Twitter, Carrie Helmick, and our podcast is at RaisingHelmick.com. Again, Carrie, thank you so much. Loved having you. Hopefully we can find another topic for us to discuss and we'll have you on again sometime in the future. That'd be awesome. Have a good night, Jake. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Worst Whatever. You can follow us on Twitter at TopWorstCast. Please make sure to rate and review us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Tune in next week for a new guest and a new top or worst of whatever it is they want to talk about. Thank you.